So uh, tonight is February 26th. It's 2014. We're going to shake the dust out of the building tonight and talk about an altered state. Now, we didn't spell that wrong on your screen. Usually, when you look at the word altered, it's A-L-T-E-R. In this case, I meant for it to be a play on words. An altered state typically refers to somebody who is under the influence of a substance of some kind, under the influence of some outside force, or at the very least, overcome with some kind of emotion. I want to talk to you about an altered state that comes from being in contact with the altar of God. Go with me to Exodus 20, and let's start in 25. Somebody say there when you get there. Who was that got there first? Who was it? It was one of you little girls. Which one? Libby. Come on now. Exodus 20 and verse 25. I'm not going to make too much of Exodus 20 and verse 25 because usually when I preach about an altar, this is my text. It will not be tonight, but I can't preach about an altar without mentioning it. In Exodus 20, 25, you hear these words. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dress stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. What an odd verse, huh? Justin, did you think that was an odd verse? Yeah, it's an odd verse. And yet, two things are very clear from reading these two verses. The altar of God cannot be the work of simply man. And dress stones and build your altar. You can't do it. When God wanted an altar built, he wanted it built out of the unique things he provided in a way that only he could fit together. The true altar of God is not the franchising of, of Christian beliefs. The true altar of God is not some assembly line that runs cattle through and simply gives everybody a one-size-fits-all solution. The true altar of God is something that was supernaturally assembled by God. Amen? Amen. That means that some of your rough edges are supposed to be there. <laughs> that means that some of your high places and some of your low places were by God's design. Matthew is patient. He is methodical. I am impatient and forceful. We make a wonderful team. It would be wrong for Matthew to be Eric and it would be wrong for Eric to be Matthew. God intended us to fit together in a certain way. Oh, Matthew's the only one who said amen. amen. The body of Christ is supposed to be diverse and supposed to be unique. Think about the time that it would take a craftsman to arrange stones in such a way that they could fit together without ever being able to knock an edge off of one. Only honoring the design of each stone and the creator who made it. And what would you use for mortar in something like that? Since you can't stack bricks on bricks and have mortar be there, some supernatural adhesive needs to be there. Jesus holds it together. But this is not our message. What was the second thing you learned about an altar? It cannot expose nakedness in God's economy when he creates something for men to seek him on it will never glorify the man who is being used at the altar it will never allow you to glory in his flesh and it will never allow him to expose his flesh it's supposed to expose the heart of God many churches are built around great personalities and great buildings this is breaking both commands of the altar. It makes it about the arrangement of bricks and makes it about the arrangement of great men rather than honoring the Creator and honoring His Spirit alone. Tonight when we talk about the altar, I'm talking about the supernatural kind, the kind that only God could have brought you to, the kind that didn't honor the man who was preaching, the man who was singing, or the man who was praying. It simply honored the actual altar of God. Can somebody say amen? amen? Let's look at the first altar in all of the Bible. This will be in Genesis 8. A guy named Noah made an altar. I'm not suggesting that one didn't occur in history before this. I'm saying this is the first time in all of the Bible one is actually mentioned. 
In Genesis 8, look at verse 20 with me. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I've done. Look at the expansion of this by verse 13 of the ninth chapter. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. The very first altar that is said to be built in the scripture reveals a promise in it. It says, although you are wicked and the earth has been cursed... There is yet a promise of life. I don't desire to snuff you out. The first thing we find when we come to God's supernatural altar is that there is a promise. In the face of our judgment, there is also a sign of life. How many of you have felt that sign of life? When you look into the heavens on a rainy day, we see the sign of a covenant that came to a man who was at an altar. The world as he knew it, his whole world had been destroyed. And yet at the altar he found the promise of God. It won't always be destruction. There is life out there for you. Of course, he had to kill something at the altar. And don't we all? But in that death, life was revealed. The altar is a place where the promise of God is revealed, where we find life. And not a curse. How about the very first altar mentioned in the book of Exodus? Turn with me to the right in your Bible. When you reach Exodus, look at the 17th chapter. Now pick up with me in the 15th verse. Moses built an altar and he called it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. He said... For hands were lifted up to the throne of Yahweh. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Who were the Amalekites? They were warlike valley dwellers. They had attacked Israel in a time of their rest outside Rephidim. The first time that Joshua appears in all of the scripture is to do war with the Amalekites. So at the very first altar in the book of Exodus, what do we find with Moses? We find a promise that God is at war with our enemy who is waiting to attack us at any moment of rest, that he is like a banner over our head that says, I will do war through you with those that are at war with me. What good news. The very first two altars in all of the Bible contain a promise that there is an end to the curse and life on the other side. The second altar proves to us that God is like a banner over our head, a war flag that says, I will contend with those that contend with you. At the altar, we find the promises of God. Are you attacked, saints? Of course. Are there days where you feel like you've been set back or had a momentary defeat? Of course. But not every day will be this way. There is an end to the curse. There is a promise in the heavens hanging out there for us. And those who have declared war on us, the Lord is the banner over our head and he will lead us to victory under the military general Joshua. At the altar, we find the promises of God. In Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, we find the very first mention of altar in the book of Leviticus. You have to go no further than the very first chapter. In fact, in Leviticus, we find much of the way that an altar actually works. Leviticus, the first chapter, start with me in the third verse. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, 
He is to take a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In the book of Leviticus, in this third altar incident that we're looking at, we find something very special. The altar is a place of personal identification. You didn't just bring an offering to the Lord. You brought a living offering that you personally put your hand on its head. Anybody have a dog? Uh, Do y'all love Lily? I know you love Lily. You love Lily almost as much as I love Winston. You ever had a dog come put his hand, I mean his head under your hand? He's nudging at you, trying to get you to pet it. What if when you put your hand on its head, you took a knife out of your pocket and cut his throat? How hard would that be? Seems cruel. Do the words, it's not fair, rise up in you? The supernatural altar forced you to identify with what was making atonement for your life. Because at the altar, you put the crown of thorns on his head. You touched its head. At the altar, when you were atoned for, you watched its blood splattered on every side of the altar. You watched that. The altar was a profound lesson. It was a lesson that said to the extent that you identify with what's happening here, I will make atonement for you. You couldn't pay somebody to go make atonement for you. Watching someone else make atonement didn't do it for you. Every man had an extraordinarily personal encounter, an identification that involved his hands on its head and that blood on the altar instead of yours. Could that make an impact on someone? Let us turn to 1 John. Say there when you're there. There would be atonement and identification. In John's first epistle in this series, starting in the eighth verse, hear these words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What was the point of confession? It was to take personal responsibility at the altar of God for the blood that was shed on our behalf. It was to lay our hand on the crown of thorns and say, my sin placed it right there. But just like every other promise at the altar, the curse would not last forever. There was a sign of life in the heavenlies. Just like every other promise at the altar, God would be at war with the one that was at war with us. And he had a plan. And in that confession, in that personal identification, something very magical happens. He washes you and he cleanses you. From unrighteousness. Did it do away with the deed that you did? Not at all. But it washed away the penalty as far as God was concerned and allowed you, an earth under judgment, to sprout new life. How many of you love your new life in Christ? How many of you are glad the judgment waters are receding? How many of you want to spend time at the altar where the promises of God are? Oh, I can see the rainbow yet in the sky. You think it's dark outside, but if you have eyes to see, the rainbow never leaves. 
Our perspective changes, but it burns brightly somewhere on the planet every day. You just have to find it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness can go away at the altar? All of it. All of it at the altar. It's an altered state, friends. The world can walk around laden with sin. No promise, no happiness, no life. But I live in an altered state of consciousness. I'm high on the Holy Ghost because His promise is in my heart. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. There is no meeting at an altar for a man who has not sinned. You can't come to know the promise on the other side of the altar without coming to the altar. There would be no rainbow in the sky had there been no altar. There would be no victory over war had there been no altar. We know the promise of God because something drove us to the altar and it was our own sin. This is why it is not possible to be born again without a gripping sense of your own need to live because you're dead. Nobody gets saved who is already healthy. Nobody goes to an altar unless something needs to die. But those of us that have identified with Christ to the point that we know what needs to die, we go to the altar and we find life on the other side. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. The altar was never an excuse to sin. It was the solution for it. We don't go by ant killers for any other reason than we know that we have ants. Buying the ant killer doesn't do away with all ants. It just kills the ones you've identified. Saints, the altar is for the sin you've identified in your life. It's for every enemy that you're at war. It's the banner over your head that says, I can win this. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the world. If Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, then how is the world still guilty of its sin? Because they've never personally identified with their sin. They didn't put their hand on his head and say, it was my hand that crucified him. They didn't get to the altar and see his blood as their blood on the altar. The sacrifice is provided, but they're not accepting. Are you? See, everything we can drag to that altar, he's already paid for. But it's not paid for until you drag it to the altar. The fact that he's provided all we could ever need doesn't mean that we've taken advantage of all that there is. Most of us get to an altar once, maybe twice in our life at a really desperate time, but we're more than willing to live with all kind of things in the closet that belong at the altar. He has provided an atoning sacrifice, enough for the whole world, but most die and go to hell every day. How many know Jesus is Lord? Well, they'll say it. How many believe Jesus is Lord? They confess it. How many lay their hands on his head and say, my life and yours are intermingled? That's required at the altar. You couldn't go take your neighbor's bull. You couldn't pick up your neighbor's goat. You couldn't send Amazon.com and have one shipped to the altar for you. It required you to walk it there. If you read the language closely in Leviticus, it's actually confusing. 
It's confusing because it looks an awful lot like you cut it up and you skin it and you sprinkle its blood and Aaron's sons just arrange the pieces. Were it not for some Talmudic sources, that's actually how it's written. They just explain it, that the priest did it for you while you stood there. But understand it's written that way for a reason. It is us who crucified him. It is us who put the crown on his head. It is us who spilt his blood. And we do it every time we sin. You could walk out feeling low if you didn't know that on the other side of that was a sign in the heavenlies that promised life. An end to the cursing and the judgment. On the other side of that was victory over Amalek. This is what we learn at the altar. In our brokenness, God does something amazing. Turn with me to Hebrews 10, and we will see the way that the writer of Hebrews put this into words. Say there when you were there. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, how do you enter? You have to have it. You have to have spilt it. You have to have been there. You have had to be at the foot of the cross and received it. You can't purchase it from somebody else. You have to enter by the blood that you were sprinkled with. If you don't have it, you can't enter. When you have it, because you personally identified with it, something amazing happens. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, whose blood sprinkled your guilty conscience? Every time it's ever been made guilty, we get to an altar. You personally put your hands upon Christ. You push the crown into his head. You drive the stake. And what comes out for you cleanses your guilty conscience and allows you to walk on in holiness. Now, you Bible scholars may be saying, wait, he was crucified once for all. He didn't die many times. No, he doesn't die many times, but we revisit that one death for all many times. You have to die as me. He doesn't die many times. You do. You do every time your sin nature rises up. You drag it back to the altar. Because it's there that we find life. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Who's he saying it to? He sang it to a man who's been sprinkled. Why did you get sprinkled? Because you were utterly unfaithful and sinful. Nobody goes to an altar unless they've sinned. Everybody who's been covered with the blood was a sinner. And the promise is where you are faithless, he is faithful. He will come through for you. He's not here to exclude you. He's here to fight the battle you can't fight. He's not here to judge you and curse you. He's here to offer you life after you realize the curse is there. The first two instances of an altar in the Bible are so instructive, are they not? Look at these next words. They get even better. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Why does the devil try to separate us? Why do some straggle and stray? Oh, the devil's trying to pull them as far from the altar that would save them as possible. But the purpose of fellowship is that we could grab arms with each other and say, brothers, let us go to the altar together. 
The point is not that we kill each other. The point is that we take each other to the place that we can find life in the death of our sinful nature. It's an altered state of existence because an altered state is a whole lot more fun with other people. See, when you can share the joy and the zeal of this new life, when you can share the good things that are happening and the new perspectives and the new songs that are in our heart, you can't help but be excited. And we feed off of each other's passion and excitement and it reminds you that it's difficult, but it's worth it. Never grow tired of growing to the altar. It's our life. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Say there when you were there. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. When Noah made the very first mention in the Bible of an altar, God said it was a pleasing aroma. In the natural, I can't imagine that burning animals could ever be a pleasing smell. Where are you at, Jacob Braun? We lit his hair on fire a few years ago. Teaching on the Nazarite vow. I think Suzanne had to leave the building lest she become visibly sick. The stench of that event is still in my memory. How often it is that what stinks among men is pleasing in the heavens. What is revolting to our flesh is pleasing to God. He loves to save us. He loves to deliver us. And you may see blood and guts at an altar. You may see death and destruction at an altar. But what he sees is a life that knows where it's at and he can bring life to it. We hate weakness. We get defensive when somebody points out a flaw because we don't want to be wrong. You've been wrong since you were born. All of you and me too. You've had a terminal illness since birth. It's when we recognize it that we find life and he can bring something else out of it. And that life is so worth having. We're told to imitate him. Where did he give us life as a fragrant offering? He did it upon a cross. It turns out that he who knew no sin was made to be sin. See, when he crawled upon a cross, he became sin. When you crawl upon the same cross, you become holy. What an exchange program. Imitate him. How do we imitate him? He had no sin and he crawled upon a cross and he became sin. You have sin. And when you crawl upon the same cross... You become holy. Oh my goodness, what a good news. What do we find at the altar? You find that it changes your state of being. It took a righteous man and made him appear to be unrighteous so that all of the rest of his brothers who are unrighteous could crawl upon it and it would make us righteous. You ought to love the altar, you ought to embrace the altar. You have an altar that the book of Hebrews says they can't eat from in Jerusalem. It's yours. And there's heavenly food on it all of the time. That altar is found anywhere a man humbles himself. Anywhere a man is broken. Anywhere life has not gone our way. And you're crushed by it. But instead of running to a bottle or a pill, you run to the altar. Everybody's trying to change their state, but we're the only ones that actually know how. What they do leaves a hangover and must be done again. What we do makes the world over. 
and is done perpetually in us. Saints, we have an altar. We have an altar. We have an altar. We have an altar. There's an altar that actually speaks in heaven. And if I get speaking about that altar, we'll never finish a message. The altar is an amazing thing in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Say there when you were there. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever wondered how this could possibly work? Oh, we've heard many sermons. The theologians descend into fine-sounding words that we have to get dictionaries to look up. Start talking about propitiation. Start talking about justification and sanctification. I found something so much more simple than that. And I'm so glad. What would you think? Would you think that the Newer Testament or the Older Testament would lay it out more simply for us? The plan of salvation. Well, most today would say, oh, without a doubt, the New Testament makes this clearer. You would be amazed at what we find in the book of Exodus. I found a single verse that really explains it all. Turn with me to Exodus 29. Say there when you were there. It's 37. For seven days make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be, what's it say? Most holy. And whatever touches it will be When you touch the altar of God, what happens to you? You become holy. This is how you take the inner parts of an animal that are washed with water, but when you put them on an altar, they become holy. This is how you could take doves and put them on an altar, but when you put them on the altar, they become holy. The altar is, say it with me, most holy, and whatever touches it is the altar is the work of cross of Christ on the cross. It is always most holy. Why? He did it in and of himself. We are only holy in that we have touched him. Now look at Matthew 23, 19. Pray for Alzheimer's. Not for it, against it. Matthew 23, 19. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift? See, there are two things at play. The altar is Christ's work on the cross. What is the gift? You. And the altar makes you holy. It was already holy, and it makes you holy. Which is greater, the gift or the altar? He is. He's greater. He's most holy, and we're made holy. Now, forget that I tripped up. Forget that I missed a verse. And think about what this means for you. Anything that touches the altar is clean, is holy. But what if I, anything that touches the altar becomes holy? You can be in a cell block full of pedophiles. But if one of them touches the altar of God, It alters his state and he becomes holy. You can be with the most abusive, terrible relative you have. But if they touch the altar of God, they are altered in their state. 
Is that not good news? We look at the gift and we should be looking at the altar. All we have to do is get to the altar, friends, and it will change everything. The altar is where we want to be. When you look at Matthew 16, 24, think of this in light of the altar. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What about going to the altar is denying yourself? You ever thought of what it meant to the average Israelite to bring an offering to that altar? Do you know what a bull costs today? Anybody? Well, it depends. It depends on the kind of bull. So let's bring a sickly one. God said, no, you got to bring me a perfect one. There are bulls in this world that cost more than $200,000 for a single bull. It's not unusual for just an average cow to cost 500 bucks. What, means, what does it mean to deny yourself? Bring the offering that God requires of you. I'm not talking about your tithe. That's the smallest part. I'm talking about whatever he requires of you. Why is it denial of self? You all know, if you, if you found out tomorrow that you got a 20% raise in a lump sum tomorrow, would not your first thought be, what do I get to do with this? I mean, am I lying? A 20% raise for you is, is, uh, is lunch. I mean, come on, church, I'm talking to you. All right? I'm not going to sign numbers to you. Let me just throw numbers out there, okay? You, uh, you made $50,000 last year, and tomorrow you find out you get $10,000 in one lump sum. What is your first thought? Plasma. What is your first thought? I couldn't hear. Pay off bills. What else? Six flags. Come on. What else? Talk to me, church. My house. What else? Sea World. Guns. Judah said an AR-15. Yeah. What? The point is, is of course things come to your mind. And the more you think about them, the more invested you are in them. And then God says, here's what I want. Now what do you have to do? Deny yourself. See, denial is a part of the altar. You deny what you would have done with that offering, and instead you're doing what God says with it. How about this? Not just denying. What do you do with that offering when you get there? You talk about take up a cross what you would have loved to have bought a new computer with. What do you do with it at an altar? It's lit on fire. It's burned up. Tell me that's not like being crucified. It's not agonizing inside. It's, yeah, that's true. It's agonizing inside, isn't it? Any man who would come after me must deny himself. This means his priority, not yours, over every offering in your whole life is an offering. Must take up his cross. What does that mean? That means you're dying to your will and accepting his, and it's agonizing. And then what do you do? Follow him. Anything that has touched an altar in that way when it walks away, no matter what direction it's walking, is holy. The man who follows Jesus is holy because to follow Jesus involved denying yourself, bringing in an offering. It involved taking up a cross, dying to your will, agonizing over it. Following him means you touch the altar and are walking away holy. Come on, saints, is that good news? In all of the Older Testament, there are so many verses. But to get to Exodus 29, 37, Lindsay, and find out that anything that touches an altar is holy. 
makes me want to run up next to it and rub on it. Makes me want to just walk by every now and then. You ever play? Oh, look, the girls are right here. Y'all play chase sometimes, don't you? Don't lie. I watch you play chase sometimes. And what's base when you, when you play chase? When you play next door, what's base? The tree. Look, they all said the tree. You got one slow kid in the bunch. I'm not going to say which one. His name's Gabriel. <laughs> and so he never gets very far from the base. Right? Because if he's over there, you can time his 40 on a calendar. And if he's over there, you might catch him. So Gabriel's a smart little rascal, and he stays close to the altar because when he touches it, he's safe. He's holy. Don't get very far from the altar. Your enemy's faster than you. He's stronger than you. And the only real defense that you have it's the altar, but it's all you need because at the altar you find out it's not just judgment. There's a heavenly promise. At the altar you find out the Lord is a banner over you and at war with whoever's at war with you. At the altar we found out how to change our state. Now there's more than one kind of altar in the Bible. There is a bronze altar... This would be the first that you encountered when you came to the encampment of God's people. Once you move past the bronze altar, you would move into the holy place. And in the holy place, you would come to an altar of incense. See, at the bronze altar, we find an example of crucifixion. This is where a body is placed upon the altar and sin is atoned for. And Jesus is that bronze altar. But he's also the altar of incense where you took a coal from the fire and its smoke ascended into the heavens and brought a message from the earth to the heavens. Could you look at Hebrews 7 and verse 25? Therefore he is able to save completely. Therefore he's able to save partially. Therefore, he's able to save somewhat. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. At the bronze altar, we find salvation. At the altar of incense, we find intercession. Every altar in the Bible speaks a message about Christ. Except Ahaz's altar. He stole it from Damascus. It speaks a message of antichrist. There are so many things that I'd like to tell you tonight, but I'm going to close with these next couple of verses. In 1 Timothy 2, 19 through 21, we're told that there's many kind of vessels in a house, some ignoble and some noble. But if you cleanse yourself from the latter, the ignoble, you're made holy. Christ is able to make you holy. That is 1 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. Not 1 Timothy 2, 1, 19 through 21. In Hebrews 2, 11, we find out he that makes men holy and the ones who are holy are of the same family. Understand the altar does something to you. It takes a vessel that was ignoble and it makes it useful for God. But it does more than that. It takes an alien and a stranger and makes you a brother to Christ. But the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus, the altar, and those who are made holy, that's the gifts, that's us, are the same family. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Any man that has gone to the altar has had his state changed from an alien, a foreigner, and an enemy of God to the family of God. A vessel worth using. Saints, is that good news? Oh, I love the altar. Maybe the last of the things that you should know about an altar comes from Leviticus 6 and verse 13. 
What's it say? Next line. If you are going to go to the altar, the altar has got to have fire on it. It's not enough to go to an altar that somebody else made. It's not enough to go to an altar somebody else said was supernatural. If you get to the altar and it has no fire on it, it's not an altar of God. Are you beginning to see what's wrong with so many? They're visiting an altar that worked for someone else at some other time in some other place. The altar of God has always got fresh fire on it. How is your passion? How is your love for the Lord? Is it as continuous today as it was last year? Is it as fresh today is it was the day you got born again. Because the real altar of God has always got fresh fire. If you don't have it, where do you get it? See, we are always visiting the altar. A smoldering wick he will not put out. He will light your fire, church. I want to show you what that looks like. It's our last scripture. Are you in Isaiah 6? Let's look at one man's encounter with an altar. And we're going to close with this. I would like you to not think that this is Isaiah for a minute. I'd like you to read it as you. Let's not read five. Let's start in one. In the year King Uzziah died, I, who is I? It's you. It's you tonight. So, Pat, you said Isaiah first, so now it's Patricia for the rest of the verse, okay? <laughs> in the year King Uzziah died, Patricia saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe unto me, Patricia cried. Patricia is ruined. For Eric Stevens is a man of unclean lips. And Eric Stevens lives among people of unclean lips. And Eric Stevens' eyes have now seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I want you to understand that at the altar we encounter the divine presence of God. And the reaction that is authentic, the reaction that is universal, is when you're in the presence of pure holiness, you become aware that you are not. That is the purpose of the altar, is for a sinner to be covered with blood, for a sinner to be convicted and die so that he can be set free. The presence of God makes you aware of your lack. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, not a dead coal, not a 200-year-old coal, not a Reformation-age coal, a live coal in his hand. How do you get a live coal, church? It's got to come from a fresh fire. Not a monument to a fire. I love this brick down here. I put it there. But that's a monument to someone else's altar. And it's just a brick. It's a brick from Azusa Street. Do you believe that an altar at Azusa Street? What does that do for you? The brick at best is a reminder that we can have an altar, but it's not an altar. 
I embedded it in what we call an altar. But it's not an altar. An altar comes from a live coal, a burning fire of what God is doing today between you and him. An altar's got to be tended to hourly or it ceases to be an altar and it becomes a monument to a movement of the past. Do you understand? He took a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. When you touch the altar, what happens? You become holy. He was unclean, but he's now touched of the altar. So what's going to happen? How important is the altar? He touched my mouth. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Oh, glory day. When you touch the altar, you're changed. How many of you think of Moses as a man of slow speech? But when he came to the altar of God, it's what he said about himself. When he left the altar of God, he became the very oracle of God. Are you hearing me? He walked up with a problem and he left with the king of solutions. Christians can never walk around defeated and full of their own flaws. When you've been to the altar, he's the cure. Isaiah was not just a man of unclean speech. He was a, a group, a, a one of, of, of many in the wrong crowd. But when he was touched of the altar, then he heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Patricia said, I will go. Here I am. Send me. See, a man who's been at the altar has been so thoroughly changed that he becomes useful for God's service. And all it takes is a touch. 